Well, good morning. It is an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, Aaron and I have been uh, enjoying every minute of our so far very brief trip here. Um, even with the weather over the last couple of days, we've we've uh, had a great time. And even more than that, though, we've really enjoyed the fellowship that we've shared with you so far. Um, I've uh, come this morning to open up God's Word to you, and I'm going to be I've come to open Romans 16, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 23. Romans 16, 1 to 23. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. 16, 1 to 23. This is the word of the Lord. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophina and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches in Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city, city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greet you. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that you have chosen in your grace and mercy to save us and to gather us together here even this morning, but to gather us by way of your word. I pray, Lord, that you'll use my imperfect study and my imperfect preaching so that your word, your perfect word, will do its perfect work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So some of you may find it a little bit unusual that I might have chosen a text like this to preach this morning. At first glance, Romans 16 may seem to many of you to be Boring list of names. Uh, it's the sort of text that, frankly, preachers are tempted to skip over. 
Um, and let's be honest, when Christians, we, we read it, we tend to skim over these names quickly on the way to finishing the end of the book, right? It's kind of easy to look at a text like this kind of as the, it's the CC field on Paul's email, right? Um, okay, that tells us who it's to, but the real value is in the, in the body of the message, right? That's, that's the way we think. So we're prone to jump over names like this. But think about that for a minute. Imagine, imagine if you were parted from your loved ones for a long time, you're overseas or on a long trip somewhere, and you wrote them a letter to your, your wife or your husband or to your kids or to your parents or to your best friend. Well, how would you feel if they just read the letter, the main body of your, your letter or your email, and they never bothered to read the I love you or I miss you that you put at the end? How would you feel if you were away and a, a letter or an email came in from them and a friend was reading it to you and that friend just left that little part out? See, when I was, uh, when I was dating Aaron, before we got engaged, I had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Spain and Morocco for several weeks. And I'd get to check my email every couple of days. And whenever I saw an email from her, and I believe me, I was looking for one, I'd, I'd read it over. Uh, but the part I'd linger over was the end where she said, I love you and I miss you. And that's the part that, you know, madly in love as I was, I'd read it several times. And I'd write her back and I'd tell her how it was going and I'd tell her at the end how much I missed her and how much I loved her. And I remember the thrill of being able to write that. Well, that was the most important part to me, madly in love as I was. And still am. <laughs> you couldn't... I had to clarify this. I, you could not have paid me to skip that part of the email. Um, you, I would have skipped the rest just to get that part, right? And again, five years ago, I had the chance to go to Russia to teach theology to some pastors there, and it was a blast. I loved every minute of it. I enjoyed the trip, but being part of it for my family, that, that's obviously tough. Thanks to the blessing of the internet, I got to talk to my family by Skype every day. And I'd tell Aaron how my day was going and what I'd done, and I'd ask her how hers was going, because her day with, you know, our, at the time, four kids was a little bit harder than mine. And just like in Spain and Morocco, the part of the communication, the part of the call this time that I looked forward to the most was at the end when she would say, I love you and I miss you. And when now the kids piled into the call and said, love you, daddy, miss you, daddy, that's that's what meant the most to me, and that's what I would go to sleep with every night ringing in my ears, and there's no way I would have skipped that part. I would have dropped the rest of the call first before missing that part. And so just like that, we can't, when we read a letter like this, we can't skip this part of a letter. When we read Romans, when we read any other one of Paul's letters, we can't just gloss over his greetings at the end. They're an important part of the letter. It would be a mistake and brothers and sisters, I love this text. I, I chose this text to bring to you because I love this chapter. It's not just a boring list of names. It's, I think, a tender and heartfelt glimpse into the lives of real Christians in real churches. And, and more than that, though, it's a picture of what God does in the lives of those whom he saves. This is, this is a vision. It's a, it's a vision for what a healthy gospel-centered, biblically-based church is supposed to look like. And so one of the most striking things about this letter is just how much of an outpouring of Christian love it is. Look at all the names in this text. There's, there's no less than 23 greetings here. 
to at least 26 identified individuals. And not just to individuals, Paul sends greetings to at least three house churches here, probably five. And remember that point about the churches, because I'm going to come back to that later in this message. Greetings come not just from Paul, but from eight other individuals and from all the churches of Christ. And in the context, that probably means a number of Gentile churches who were at this time sending financial support to Jerusalem with Paul. And so he's sending greetings on their behalf. None of Paul's other letters have such a long list of greetings to or from. So this is, this is no mere list of names. This is a display of the gospel. This is a display of the gospel shown in an outpouring of love from Paul and from those who are with him to the church at Rome. And an outpouring of Christian love that isn't just wide, like dozens of names, it's deep. Verse, verse 5, Eponidas is called my beloved. Verse, verse 8 greets Ampliatus my beloved in the Lord. Verse 9 speaks of Paul's beloved Stachus. Verse 12 addresses the beloved Persis. Verse 13 talks about Rufus's mother who has been a mother to me as well. And verse 16 has Paul's usual but heartfelt nonetheless exhortation, greet one another with a holy kiss. And this is a holy, real, heartfelt, passionate love and it's a family love. Verse 1, he called Phoebe our sister. Andronicus and Junia in verse 7 are called kinsmen. So is Herodian in verse 11. Paul sends greetings from Jason, from Lucius, from Sosipater as his kinsmen. That tells us they're not only fellow Jews, but he sees them as family. The house church he talks to in verse 14, he calls them brothers. His warning to them, starting in verse 17, begins by calling all of his readers brothers as well. And by that, means he means brothers and sisters. He conveys greetings from their brother, Quartus. See, Paul loves these people. Many of these people, remember, many of these people he's never met. But he loves them. He speaks of them as family, as his brothers and sisters, and even his mother. Does that sound odd? Well, not for a follower of Jesus. Jesus himself says, Mark 3, verse 35, he says, whoever does the will of God is his brother and sister and mother. So for Paul, church isn't just a social club. It's not a community association. So this comes to our first point of application then. What about you? What about you sitting here this morning? Do you look at church as merely a club meeting? Or do you look at it as a family reunion? Look around you. Look in your row right now. Look around. Do you love these people? Do you long for their company and their fellowship? When you go away on a, on a vacation or on a business trip, do you miss the people in this room? Do you keep in touch with these brothers and sisters when you can't be here in person? Or if, this, if you're visiting here, if this isn't your home church, or if it is, and you visit another gospel-believing church somewhere else, people you've never met, do you still feel this, this affection and warmth for them and this affection and warmth from them? Love for strangers. Now, Paul reminded the Romans, he and they were, they were united. United in love. That's, that's our first point this morning. Brothers and sisters, please cultivate this kind of unity this kind of united love here in this church. Strive to nurture this kind of love for Christians in other churches, even Christians far away in other lands. Care for one another, pray for one another, laugh with one another, and cry with one another. 
See, we put the gospel on display when we show the world that we are united in love. So that's our first point, being united in love. And yet, it's very well for Paul to write about love. It's very well for me to preach about love. But in Paul's day, people didn't know what love was, and it's no different in ours, is it? Like in our world, Paul's, Paul's world tended to see love as something transactional, you know, something selfish. It's something that you get something out of, right? So it's striking that the kind of unity here in Romans chapter 16, it's marked by a different kind of love. It's a, it's a selfless love. Indeed, Paul's stressing a sacrificial, self-denying kind of unity here in, in his greetings. And again, the language Paul uses puts this selflessness on display. At the beginning, very beginning of our text, he talks about this woman, Phoebe. She is a, a servant in the church at Sancria. And we get a sense of what she did for her church when Paul says, she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. She seems to have been a wealthy woman. Um, she seems to be a woman who dedicated her possessions to serve and to care for other believers. She was apparently so deeply valued by her home church in Sancria for what she did that that the Greek here suggests she had a formal role serving her church and caring for its practical and physical needs. She wasn't a teacher. She wasn't a, a person who was up front or being followed. She was a person who served others, serving them in the, in the church, serving them their practical needs. And so Paul therefore calls these Roman Christians who've never met her to welcome her in a way worthy of the Lord. That is a selfless, sacrificial, self-denying welcome because Paul's telling them, help them or help her in whatever she may need from you. He's telling, give her a blank check, right? At the end of our passage, we see this fellow Gaius, the very end, verse 23. Gaius who hosts the Corinthian church in his house, because Paul's writing this from Corinth. And Gaius is probably the first name of the fellow that we find in Acts 18, verse 7, a fellow named Titius Justus there. Um, he, he was a Jew whose house was right next to the Jewish synagogue, and so you imagine this guy, he, the awkwardness of seeing his Jewish friends and family going to, going to synagogue every Saturday morning, every Sabbath, and knowing they're hostile to him because of his faith. Seeing them out, out, out his own window. All these people who are hostile to him, constantly reminding him of what he had lost for believing in Jesus. That's, that's, the, that's who Gaius is. And it's not just Phoebe, it's not just Gaius. We have Prisca and Aquila. Um, Paul tells the Romans, they literally risked their necks for my life. And there's more. They too are hosting a church in their house. They're making their home available for others. They're sacrificing their own comfort and their own privacy. Aquila and Priscilla do this wherever they go. Uh, for the New Testament tells us elsewhere, they were key members of church plants in Corinth and in Ephesus as well. Andronicus and Junia in verse 7, they're Paul's fellow prisoners. They suffered humiliation and loss for the gospel. And Paul's warning, starting in verse 17, about those who cause division in the church, he makes the same point there. Divisive people serve their own appetites rather than serving Christ. It's the same point, but by contrast. He means selfishness as opposed to true Christianity. Being selfless and sacrificial is part and parcel of identifying with Jesus. And so the application here, our second application, it's quite obvious. Are you personally known to others for your selflessness? Is your church known for its sacrifices to others? Or if you're visiting from another fellowship today, is your church known for that? 
Do you personally give of your, your time, your money, your physical strength, your comfort in order to advance the gospel, in order to carry the burdens of others here in this church? Are you willing to give up your privacy, let others wear out your house for gatherings, wear out your car to drive people to the airport? Are there, think, about, think about needs. Are there young mums you could be babysitting for? Are there older believers who need a visit in their homes? Is there a brother without a job in this economy who you could help out? Note that the Romans here, they're told to seek out Phoebe's needs. They're not to passively wait for her to ask them. They are to get into her business and ask her, what do you need from us? So are you getting into other people's lives like that? Are you seeking out, actively seeking out ways to serve others? Looking for actively for opportunities to give yourself away? Or are you making other people do the work to come to you when they need help? Selflessness, it also applies to relationships as well. Are you holding on to any grudges? Are you harboring bitterness? Are you withholding forgiveness? See, because that's fundamentally selfish, right? Christians can't be united if they aren't willing to trust the Lord to do what is right and give to one another treatment that even we think they might not deserve things that we think they're not entitled to, if we're not selfless in giving them grace. See, being sacrificial is all about giving others what they aren't entitled to. In other words, Christian unity is all about grace. Jesus Christ, he, he carried our burdens. He bore our transgressions. He was punished for our sins. And he did it, why? To save people for his own possession, not a people devoted to their own possessions. He did it so we would be united in selflessness, among other things. So that's our second point. We're to be united in selflessness. And what we hear, see here in Romans 16, it really it is something remarkable. You, you think about what these names represent. It's a group of people united across the seven hills of Rome and across the sea, the Adriatic Sea, by a deep and a heartfelt love. People who consider others not related to them, to be close or even closer than their own mothers and sisters and brothers. People who are literally willing to put their necks on the executioner's block for others simply because they believe in the same God. People who can be urged to provide a blank check of support to a woman they have never met. This is remarkable. But there's more. There's proof of something supernatural at work that's plain to all here. This display of the gospel is also seen in the sheer diversity of this list of names. And diversity, it's a, it's a buzzword these days, isn't it? We, we hear it all the time. Well, this isn't the world's surface-level diversity or multiculturalism. Yeah. And you know what I mean. Try, try sharing a politically incorrect opinion nowadays, right? Try going, on the, uh, try going on the street with more than, say, three kids and listen to the comments. Consider the push to allow the elderly to commit assisted suicide, an option that I fear is destined to become a culturally pressured duty. Consider our culture's view of unborn life, of kids with Down syndrome. You know, our, our world talks a lot about diversity, but it's just talk. In fact, it's a lie. See, if you want to see true, meaningful diversity, look at the people described here in this text. We've... It, it, Paul has spent up to this point several chapters hammering home the idea that Jew and Gentile are one in Jesus Christ. Well, here's the proof. In this passage, we see many Jewish names. We see uh, verse 6, we have Mary, Andronicus and Junia, and verse 7, 
Um, even more, Andronicus is likely Hellenistic Jew. That's a, a different category of Jew. We've got the household of Aristobulus in verse 10. Um, that's probably slaves who once belonged to Herod the Great's grandson. He lived. This grandson lived in Rome, had a large household. He died before this letter, and his slaves probably were still in the imperial household and probably counted many Jews among them. So the guy in the very next verse, Herodian, um, who Paul identifies as a Jew, as a kinsman, he probably has that name because he was set free by someone in Herod's family. He's probably a former slave, and he took Herod's name in gratitude for the guy who freed him. We've already seen Paul point out Jason and Lucius and Sosipater in verse 21. He's describing them as fellow Jews. So these, these are all Jews. And yet there's so many Gentiles here as well. Phoebe, her name is connected to the Greek god Apollos. So she's certainly Greek. Uh, we've got other Greeks here like Asyncritus, Petrobus, Hermas, Philologus, Nereus. Those are all Greek names. We've got Erastus sending greetings. He's in Corinth. He's a Greek. Uh, Aquila is from Pontus, which is now northern Turkey along the Black Sea. So, uh, we've got Persis. It refers to a woman. It's a woman's name. Persis means Persian. She's from what we now know as Iran. We've got Rufus. He's probably the same man mentioned in Mark 15 as a son of Simon the Cyrene. So Rufus is probably from North Africa. And of course, there's a bunch of Latin names because this is Rome. You've got Ampliatus. You've got Urbanus. You've got Hermes. You've got Julia. So you've got all these Latins. These Romans. So it's not just ethnic diversity on display, though, although there's lots here. I count 10 women here in this chapter alongside the men. We have diversity of age. Timothy, he mentions, well, he's a young man. Rufus's mother, on the other hand, is probably quite elderly at this point. But perhaps most striking to me when I was studying this passage is the diversity in social status here. We we already looked at Phoebe. She's probably wealthy. We've got Erastus in verse 23. He's, he's the city treasurer for Corinth. Um, well, archaeologists have actually dug up a paving stone in Corinth with his name on it. Um, it states that Erastus laid that pavement, that entire road, at his own expense. So we know he had some money, right? Priscilla and Aquila, I would call probably upper middle class. They're small business people. They've, they're tent makers since Paul, uh, when he was on his missionary journeys, he would support teams of missionaries with his tent making business and they, he would work with Aquila and Priscilla. Well, since they have a home big enough to ho host a small church, they're probably pretty well off. We've got house churches mentioned in verses 14 and 15. And so I, I'm guessing there's probably at least two unknown others not mentioned here who are probably middle class or even higher. So these middle and upper class Christians, they're remarkable in contrast with the sheer number of slaves mentioned here. I've already pointed out the household of Aristobulus. That's probably a bunch of slaves, like Herodian. Uh, same goes for the household of Narcissus, uh, verse 11. Um, Narcissus uh, may be a guy who we know to have been one of Emperor Nero's closest advisors. There's a very powerful man named Narcissus in Rome at this time. He was like, Nero's number two, basically. Well, he would have had a large household with many slaves, and it seems some of them may have come to Christ. Many of the names Paul greets here, they're common slave names. We've got Ampliatus, Urbanus, Persis, Asyncritus, Hermes, Philologus, Julia, Nereus, Olympus. All these are names that have been found in ancient times to have been slaves. There's Hermes, whose name was typical of low-class Eastern immigrants to Rome in this period. And then there's poor Phlegon. That's a common dog's name. So you've got Jews and Gentiles, slaves and freemen. 
rich and poor, women and men, old and young, Latins, Persians, Libyans, Greeks, Hellenistic and Palestinian Jews, residents of Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Sancria, probably elsewhere. So many differences. What do they have in common? Well, look at the unity here. This is gospel unity. They really have nothing in common except for Jesus Christ. Well, this unity and diversity isn't just contained to this passage. Again, you, you look around you. You look around at the people in the pew next to you. You've got bosses and you've got employees. You have folks who are well off. You've got folks who are middle class. You've got starving students. You've got seniors and you've got tiny babies. Married and single. Women, men. New Brunswickers. PE Islanders. Newfoundlanders. Albertan. Townies and Bayman. <laughs> I learned that. Newfoundlanders and CFAs. Red and yellow, black and white, it's the old Sunday school goes, that's happening here. Now, I, know, I know you're not a perfect church. There isn't any such thing as a perfect church this side of heaven. But you know what? If you were all perfect, your unity wouldn't display the gospel now, would it? You wouldn't need the gospel to get along. Because you aren't perfect, because you are all sinners, the very fact that Calvary Baptist exists is a display of the gospel because here the nations are coming to Zion. Now, what does that mean, though? How do all these different people being together in Paul's letter, how is that a display of the gospel? Like, that's the third point, diversity, uh, unity and diversity. But what, what about the gospel binds us all here together? That leads to our fourth point. What is the gospel? Well, again, this text tells us where this unity is located, where the fellowship lies. And Paul says it. He says it again and again. And again, he drives the point in deeper and deeper. He starts, starts in verse 2. He tells the Romans to welcome Phoebe in the Lord. Verse 3, Priscilla and Aquila are Paul's fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, Andronicus and Junia are in the Lord before even Paul was. Verse 8, Ampliatus is Paul's beloved in the Lord. Verse 9, where Urbanus is Paul's fellow worker in Christ. Verse 10, Apelles is approved in Christ. Verse 11, Paul, uh, the Romans are to greet on Paul's behalf, those in Narcissus' house who are in the Lord. Verse 12, we see Trophina and Trophosa, their workers in the Lord. Verse 12 again, Persis has worked hard in the Lord. Verse 13, Rufus is chosen in the Lord. And at the end, even Tertius is grabbing Paul's hammer and taking a swing to drive the point in. I, Tertius, greet you in the Lord. So did you catch that? Do you think he's trying to say something here? Like, in the Lord, in Christ. In Christ Jesus. You know, if, if someone says something to you twice, it's probably because you weren't paying attention the first time. If you say it three times, especially in the biblical context, like the angels of heaven calling God holy, 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 you, it's something you better be listening to, right? Well, what if he says it 11 times, like he says here in this passage? See, all this unity that we see here in Romans 16, this, this remarkable love across human differences, this selfless, sacrificial, self-denying service for one another, this glorious picture of Jew and Gentile, and rich and poor and male and female and old and young, all of it is in Christ. All this is located in the Lord. Do you know what it means to be in Christ? So that's what the entire book of Romans is about. That's what the entire Bible is about. That's why there's a Christian faith at all. That's why we're here this morning. To be in Christ is to belong to him. So are you in Christ? That's the question each of us has to ask ourselves. 
Examine yourselves to see if you're in the Lord, Paul says elsewhere. Well, do you belong to Jesus? If you're visiting here with us and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you came today. If, if you leave with, with nothing else, I want you to understand how, what it means, how it is to be in Christ. See, it's not about who your parents were. It's not about the family you grew up in. You're not, you're not a Christian just because you grew up in a Christian family. You're not a Christian because of the town you grew up in. Or because you got sprinkled in a church when you were a baby or something. Even if you are a Christian, you need to hear this again and examine yourself. Being a Christian means being in Christ. And that means believing the gospel, believing the good news. In order to be in Christ, you need to recognize that you were once in rebellion against God and that he's bringing judgment against you. To be in Christ, you need to know that left to yourself, you're on your way to hell. Unless you give up on trying to be your own person, you turn away from your sin, and you throw yourself at Christ's mercy. In other words, to be in Christ, all you have to do is believe in Jesus, who was punished in the place of sinners who paid the price. And that's, that's it. That's all. Not ceremonies, not family background, not good deeds. You just trust that he's taking care of your sin and stop trying to save yourself. And if you're still not sure how to be saved, how to be in Christ like Paul's describing here, please come and talk to me afterwards. Or look around you. People in this church can lead you to Jesus. They all know him too. So don't leave here without reckoning with this Jesus and knowing what it means to be in him. Know where you stand. Well, what if you are in Christ? Well, if you're a Christian, this matters to you too. The gospel is not just for brand new believers. The gospel is for everyone. If you're a Christian, the reason you're here on earth is to bring glory to Jesus. And that means bringing other people to him. Means telling other people about him, giving good news to all. Well, you're only going to do that if you understand what it means to be in Christ. You know, I got to be here on Wednesday where your elders presented a vision for church planting, a vision for a church that reaches out to this city, this island, this whole province. Well, brothers and sisters, it's not going to work if you don't understand what it means to be in Christ. You will fail. You will bring no glory to God if you do not tell others, if you do not understand yourselves what it means to be in Christ. Out west where I come from, there's this furniture store that used to advertise no frills, no gimmicks, right? Well, that's the attitude we as Christians need to have with the gospel. No frills and no gimmicks. You know, light shows, smoke and mirrors, door prizes, and all the other tricks that some churches are using to try to attract people to the gospel. Yeah, sure, they'll draw a crowd, but when you, what you win them with is what you win them to. If people come to be entertained to your church, they'll only stay if they're entertained. And you... No church is going to compete with the world for entertainment. Let's face it. So brothers and sisters, know the gospel. Love the gospel. The only thing that will revive the rock is what Paul said. Christ and him crucified. So cling to the old bloody cross. Preach the terrors of hell and the joys of forgiveness. Point to Christ and not to yourselves. And that starts here. That starts in this room. It starts with being united in Christ as a display of what this true gospel does. See, Christians were to stand united in Christ. Your church, my church, all churches are to be united in Christ. And we're all to be united by the kind of love and self-sacrifice and diversity that we've already talked about. 
And it's a beautiful thing to behold, but what makes this unity remarkable also makes it offensive to others. The whole reason there is a gospel, the very reason there a good news is needed is because there's bad news, right? Sin is real and it is deadly. And if you aren't serving Jesus Christ, you're working for the enemy. There is no, there is no spiritual middle ground. That brings us to verses 17 to 19. One of the most interesting parts of this chapter, because of where they're placed. Why does Paul interrupt his greetings with such an urgently worded warning? Paul's been portraying this remarkable unity, and yet Paul knows that unity doesn't just happen. As he's going through these names, I think, as he's, as he's dictating this to Tertius, he's going through these names, greet this person, greet that person. He's pro- his joy is probably increasingly, as he goes, mixed with concern. And when he gets to the greeting, he's about to pass on greetings from the other churches, churches like Galatia, torn apart by legalists, churches like Corinth, fighting over false apostles, licentiousness, churches like Thessalonica, arguing over the end times. I think when Paul got to mentioning these other churches, he remembered their struggles, and he had to say something to these Roman Christians. And so he says, watch out. False teachers are coming, is what Paul's saying to them. I don't think they've arrived yet when Paul writes this letter here, because he quickly assures them that your obedience is known to all, and so I rejoice over you. He's trying to prevent something here. He's not trying to address a problem that's already there. I think he seems to hint at this when he talks of smooth talk flattering the naive. To him, the Romans are naive to this false teaching, something you aren't exposed to yet. But, but Paul knows from bitter experience that there is an enemy out there, and he's working to destroy Christ's flock. And so Paul warns against those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. He wants to describe the marks of a false teacher so that the Romans will recognize him. Well, what kind of, what kind of man is Paul, Paul warning about here? And he provides five signs, five features of a false teacher. First, he's divisive. He tries to pick groups of believers against each other. He tries to rally support to himself, you know, overtly or through whisper campaigns. He attacks other Christians, like Paul's attacked in Corinth by those calling themselves super apostles. Second, he puts obstacles out, things that make coming to Christ difficult. Remember that Paul was just two chapters before this. In Romans 14, he's talking about avoiding stumbling blocks. Don't put stumbling blocks before a new believer. Well, Paul's concerns that mature believers need to be willing to forego their rights and allow new believers time to grow in their convictions. Well, the kind of man that Paul's warning about here does exactly the opposite. He doesn't care about the weak brother. He makes it hard in one way or another for the new or weak or struggling believer to grow. Third, he teaches contrary to the doctrine that the Romans have already received. Paul warns about the person who shows up teaching something new, something they haven't heard before, and that goes against what they've already been taught in practice. Fourth, this is a guy who serves his own appetites rather than Jesus. He's not selfless. His main concern is himself. He may be seeking to enrich himself. He may be motivated by envy and rivalry. Um, He's selfish and he's self-interested. And finally, They're smooth talkers. They're flatterers. Think about why false teachers gain a following. It's not because they look ugly and they're they're horrible speakers and all that. Just because a person is persuasive and charismatic and smart does not mean you can trust them. They flatter some people. They praise their intelligence or their character or whatever in order to make those, those people 
more sympathetic to them. And so Paul's saying that the Romans are to be vigilant for people who act like this. And they are to deal with them because this is the kind of person who will not only destroy their church, but shipwreck souls. Well, the, the application for us today, for you, is exactly the same. When, when I was in seminary, I got the chance to talk to an experienced Reformed Baptist pastor about church planting, because um, he'd done it. And his warning to me was, when you plant a church, all the weirdos come out of the woodwork. Well, God's allowed me to pastor in church plants for almost 10 years now, and I have to say that that pastor was right. Church plants, new churches, weak churches are all particularly vulnerable to knowledgeable and persuasive people with bad intentions. There are people who float around looking for new works because they want to try to steer it in their own preferred direction. So you brothers and sisters, your church isn't so new anymore, but you are hoping to start new churches. And so... I'm telling you, this will draw the wolves' attention, both to your plants and to your mother church. And so it's going to be so crucial for you that you watch out for division, then starting right here among yourselves. So guard your unity. Don't gossip. Don't let others gossip to you. Don't put stumbling blocks in front of struggling Christians. Put aside your preferences and freedoms and rights. Let others grow as the Spirit teaches them. Learn sound doctrine. Pay attention on Sunday morning. Ask your elders to recommend good books to you. Do your learning in fellowship with others and not just on your own. Don't just be a self-feeder. Don't be selfish. Put others first. Be willing to suffer inconvenience for others, forgiving them for failures and sins against you. Don't be easily impressed by flattery or smooth talk. Don't let others stroke your ego or puff you up. Be like the Bereans in Acts. Weigh everything by Scripture. Most of all, cling to one another. The opposite of division is unity. So look around again. This, this is your family. Hold on to them. Stand with them when the storm comes because it's, it's coming. See, un unity is not automatic and it draws unwanted attention. So don't be naive. Our churches are called to be united in vigilance lest we be divided and fall. That's, that's the point I'm making there. Next, yeah, vigilance takes work. The whole Christian life takes work. Not that our work earns salvation or anything. But remember, we're saved not merely to punch our tickets to heaven. That's not the point of salvation. We're saved for God's glory. We're to be used by him here on earth for his purposes. We're called to be united because, this is our next point, we've got a mission to accomplish. We're to be united in mission. And you look again at the text. Phoebe, like I said, she has a role serving the church of Sancria. Prisca and Aquila, they're Paul, Paul's fellow workers, having served together with him in church plants in Corinth and Ephesus. Verse 6, he says, Mary has worked hard for them. Verse 9, we have Urbanus, he is another fellow worker. Persis too has worked hard in the Lord, Paul says. Down in verse 21, Timothy is also described as a fellow worker. Verse, tw verse 12, I think, is actually quite funny. Um, doesn't really come across in English too well, but... Uh, Paul calls Trophina and Trophosa hard workers, is what he does. It's a wordplay because their names in Greek mean delicate and dainty. Delicate and dainty are hard workers. So Paul's just told the Romans previous to this chapter, he hopes they'll join him in what? In his mission to Spain. He repeatedly stresses in this ta text that I just read, how many of their own workers, or, or, or how many of their own number have worked hard for him and with him? 
And he's drilling in the point that this is what the church is for. It is a place of service. So how about you? And this is the next application. Look around yourselves again. This, these people that you're sitting with, behind you, in front of you, beside you, they're your co-workers in Christ, your fellow workers. They're your, your teammates. They're your comrades in arms, your companions. Christ commanded us all, not just, not just paid pastors and stuff. He, he commanded us all to make disciples of all nations. The harvest is white and we need workers. Let me ask you, if the day comes where Christianity is only permitted on a Sunday morning inside a church hall, if the day comes where Christian activities outside of that hall, like evangelism and fundraising and sharing of biblical literature and recruiting missionaries, if that becomes illegal, like it is in some countries, how much evidence would they be able to drag up against you? I pointed out earlier, Paul sent greetings to at least three churches and as many as five, and I told you to remember that, that we'd come back to that. Well, notice that he's talking to more than one church here. This church in Rome is actually multiple churches. Notice that the people in these three, four, five churches, are, they know each other. They're talking to each other. Paul addresses all these churches together. Think about this for a minute. Where did these three, four, five churches come from? Do you think they all started at the same time? Apart from each other. It's possible. But again, notice all these believers seem to know each other. Otherwise, Paul couldn't have written a letter to them all at once, could he? I think it's more likely there was one church at first and then others. I see here not just a church united in love, in selflessness, in Christ. I see a reproducing church. A church that is already starting other little churches. This is a church that's on assignment, a church that is on mission. So brothers and sisters, if you as a church are hoping to plant new churches, it's not something that your elders are going to be able to do by themselves. If you're hoping to plant churches, simply, and to use Pastor Steve's term, parachuting in a church planter to do it for you is not going to work. It's been tried. It's being tried in this city right now from what I hear. It doesn't work. If you as a church hope to see new churches planted, it's only going to happen if you as a church work together to plant churches. That means all of you. That means the assembly of the saints. The harvest needs workers. Well, you all need to be workers. You need young people to take the gospel onto the university campus. You need older folks to mentor your younger folks. You need Mature men to teach manhood in a culture where boys, let's face it, aren't expected to grow up until their late 30s. You need mature women to teach biblical womanhood to girls taught by our culture since birth that their value consists only in their sexuality. You need contractors to build church sanctuaries. You need financial planners to help you spend wisely. You need lawyers to ride shotgun on your, on your mission work in an increasingly hostile legal environment. Now, I can say, yeah, you all need to work. Well, I have six kids. I know, I know life is busy. Maybe, maybe you're listening to me say this. You're a young mom overwhelmed with your kids and can barely make it through a church service without losing your mind. Maybe you have health challenges and you can't be a volunteer in the sense as I've been talking about. Well, you know what? That's okay because you know what? You can teach those kids. You can set an example for others in your suffering by holding to Jesus and telling others to do the same. You can encourage others just by being here on Sunday morning with phone calls, with emails. Above all, you can pray. See, if you're here and you believe, you have a job to do. 
You're not to sit passively in the pew. We need to be united in this mission that we're called to as Christians. So united in mission is our sixth point. And finally, and don't miss this, we as Christians need to be united in, in this mission. It's not going to do itself. One of the most staggering things about how God relates to human beings is that he stoops down to our level and lets us participate in what he's doing. Have you thought about that? As, as a dad, one of the tendencies I have to fight all the time is the urge to do things myself when my kids want help. I've got my, my four-year-old boy is at the age where he actually wants to help me bring out the garbage. It will pass quickly, I'm sure, but right now I should be more appreciative of it. See, part of me is impatient. I can carry six garbage bags at a time and make it out to the garage in one trip. Now that's efficient, right? My four-year-old, on the other hand, he can only carry one. And he has to go back and forth. And even when he gets there, I have to be the one lifting the bag into the bin for him because he can't reach. So part of me chafes at having to walk back and forth six times with him just to get the garbage out. Well, that's a narrow view. See, he's learning. He's growing. And he's bonding with daddy when he does that. And for that matter, I'm growing in patience and self-control and love, selflessness. We both need to take that time. Now, the analogy's not perfect. God does not change. God does not grow. He is all-powerful, and he could do this mission by himself without any involvement with, from us. In fact, he does all the heavy lifting himself anyway. Just like I'm the one who actually lifts the garbage bag up a meter into the can, God is the one actually changing the heart and drawing the rebel sinner to himself. So why are we needed? Because he said so. Because he's glorified in us as we labor for him by the power of his spirit. Paul here, don't miss this, Paul here tells the Roman church that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath their feet. Underneath your feet, he says. Remember Genesis 3, where God promises that the serpent's head will be crushed by the woman's seed. Well, Jesus crushed Satan on the cross, yes. But the cross is also where he dealt with our sin, allowing us to be united with him. And so as God, God is even now crushing Satan through his mission to save his elect, he's using Christians like these ones in Rome, these ones here in St. John's, to do it. God is pleased to let us, weak, fallible human beings, be his instruments in saving the world. And what a privilege that is. We live in a world that's desperately seeking meaning and value in, in money and pleasure and architecture and technology and political action. Everything this city is striving for is vapor, meaningless. No wonder Solomon throws up his hands in despair in Ecclesiastes, but Paul here gives hope. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. You want meaning? The world wants meaning. Well, you want meaning? Here is meaning. There's a world crying for love and true love is found only in Jesus Christ. There's a world tearing itself apart by its selfishness and yet a self-sacrificed Christ will teach them selflessness. This is a world where the nations rage and peoples are being ethnically cleansed and rich are trampling poor and women are being abused and yet here in Christ... The second person of the Trinity, true diversity and unity, actually coexist eternally. 
There's a world, we live in a world where people believe they're just cosmic accidents, bags of biological jelly that have no reason to exist and no significance. No wonder they're crying out for meaning. And yet here we are, imperfect, helpless in ourselves, and this Christ is telling us to give them good, good news that there is meaning and significance, and it can be found fully and finally only in Christ. That's hope. We have hope to offer to this world. And we're called to be united in this hope. The world is called to find this hope in Christ. Paul called the Romans 2,000 years ago to join him for the sake of this hope. And Jesus is calling us, he's calling you today to look to this hope. To look to Christ. Watch God crush Satan and all he stands for underneath your feet. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we consider your limitless power, your infinite worth, and we marvel at the fact that we as imperfect, fallible human beings are permitted even to participate in what you are doing here in the world. And yet, Lord, that is your gracious will. I pray that you would use your word preached every Sunday here and throughout the ministry of this church to teach these saints how to be mature servants that will carry this gospel, this good news of hope in Christ to this desperately needed city and province. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.